0: Hello and welcome to episode 8 of The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that attempts to answer that nagging question, why do people play this crazy and addictive game? I'm your host, Rod Murray, and I trust you enjoyed last month's chat with Royal Melbourne Director of Courses, Richard Forsyth. If you did happen to miss it... I highly recommend going back and having a listen, particularly ahead of next week's President's Cup. Now, if you are delving into the archives, make sure to check out some of our other interviews as well. They've all been an enormous amount of fun to do. And our chats with Bob and Kathy Shearer, Peter Lonard, Tom Moore, Richard Sattler, Paul Daly and Sue Wooster have all been special for their own reasons. If you like the podcast and you think you know somebody else who might enjoy it, please don't hesitate to share it. We feel like we've found a bit of a niche, and we're extremely keen to welcome as many like-minded golf fans as possible. You can get in touch with us with suggestions or comments or feedback. Uh, that's all obviously welcomed. You can email us at golf at au, or find us on Twitter. I'm at, at rod. Underscore Mori, that's M O R R I, or the show has its own handle where you can send us a message. That's at Thing Golf, capital T H I N G, capital G O L F. You'll also find us on Facebook. Just do a quick search if you like, or you can find the links to all of that in the show notes. Now, just before we go ahead, I must also apologize to a number of people who've gone to the trouble of leaving extremely nice reviews about the podcast on the Apple Podcast app, but I've failed to mention them. Rooster's Rule, Bob Head, and Simon TB. You know who you are. Heartfelt thanks from me for the kind words. Greatly appreciated. Okay, enough administration. Let's get on with this episode. And today, we turn from what's involved in caring for the golf course to what's involved in trying to beat it. For more than 40 years, Peter Sr. has been plying his trade on the fairways of the world, and his name is synonymous with at least two or perhaps three generations of Australian golfers. Peter officially retired from mainstream play in 2016, but to suggest that he no longer plays competitively would be incorrect in the extreme. Now 60, he regularly travels the country playing the local Legends Tour, where his name, not unusually, can be found often at the top of the leaderboard, as it was in November in Sydney when he claimed the Australian Senior PGA Championship. Peter's known for a number of things in Australian golf, but three in particular stand out his unorthodox follow-through of that remarkably effective swing, his relentless competitive spirit and ability to get the job done when the pressure's on, and finally, but perhaps most importantly, for being one of the very nicest people in the professional game. As always with a player who's seen and done as much as Peter Sr. has, one walks away from an interview like this feeling like there was more left on the table than actually drawn out into the light, and that is certainly true of this chat. However, I hope that you enjoy the array of topics we did manage to touch on and that you, like me, come away feeling that you know just a little bit more about Peter Sr. than you did at the start. And I can assure you that, yes, he's maybe even a better bloke than you thought. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Sr. First things first, Pete. Uh, Thanks for taking some time. I hate to be rude. Can I just confirm your age? Because I'm 57 when you won in 2015, I reckon. Is that
1: right? Um, Well, yes. That was the last time I won a tournament. I'm 60 years of age now. 60. All right.
0: Um, Not the last time you won a tournament, but we'll come to that. The podcast series is called The Thing About Golf. What's the thing about golf for Pete Senior? Uh,
1: My whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, From the very first moment I picked up a golf club, I knew what I wanted to be, and I set my targets for that.
0: Yeah, have you achieved, the, we'll get into some of the specifics of career and whatnot later. It's an impossible question I said, but way back when, when you looked ahead, you wanted golf to be your life, could you have pictured what it's been?
1: Um, I could have pictured probably winning a major. I think that's the only thing that was missing from my career. I won plenty of tournaments, but mm-hmm. uh, everybody, it doesn't matter who it is, always dreams of winning a major. That's kind of what you get
0: into it for in some ways, isn't it? How did you come to it, Pete, all those years ago? How did you come to golf? Why golf? Uh, or oh, footy or soccer or uh, tennis or cricket.
1: Uh, my father and, uh, was in the military and he got posted over in Singapore. And on the military base there, they had a nine-hole golf course. And to keep us out of trouble in the <laughs> afternoon, he brought my older brother Jeff and myself a set of golf clubs to share between us. Uh-huh. And uh, we started there. So yeah. uh, Jeff went on. I, I wasn't really interested. I was more into swimming and soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, But Jeff went on, he represented Australian Knives and Howe Cup, he won a few events and then that sort of got me thinking that uh, if he could do it, probably, you know, it must be pretty easy.
0: What was that relationship like? Of course, I I think many of us golf fans forget Jeff played the Pro Tour for a long time as well, he didn't have the success that you did, but what was that relationship like growing up? Did you spur each other on or...?
1: Uh, well, Jeff was one of those guys who didn't like to travel, and for a professional golfer, that's not a good it's thing. Death, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So he mainly toured around Asia and kept in Australia, um, where I wanted to go everywhere, and uh, that was a difference. Mm.
0: When you were kids, were you competitive?
1: Uh, very competitive. Uh, we used to sort of be in the final of the club championship nearly every year at Capera. So, it, you know, and when I won, he wasn't very happy. So, uh, <laughs> and when he won, were you happy? Uh, I wasn't happy, but, uh, you know, just the thought that it made him happy sort of settled the, the muddy waters a little bit.
0: And were you two the first golfers in the family? I'm always intrigued by this because it can be a difficult game for people to come to, can't it? To, to sort of arrive at.
1: Uh, well, mum and dad never played. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, the way I started over in Singapore just to keep out of trouble. And, uh, you know, when I moved back to Australia, dad actually bought a house near Capera Golf Club. So Jeff could actually play a decent course and get a bit of tuition and so forth. And, uh, every afternoon I used to go over and look for golf balls to get a little bit of pocket money for the week <laughs> at school, uh, go to the tuck shop and that sort of stuff. But, uh, and one thing led to another and I got really interested.
0: Uh-huh. Those who know, you won't be surprised by the notion of you hunting for golf balls for money. But we'll come to some of that a little bit later on and what you've done in business uh, over the years as well. I'm intrigued, Pete, by this notion of the idea of being a professional golfer. It's a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? Now, what's the most important? Is it the professional or the golfer? I feel like there's been a shift in the last generation or two of professional players. You're a very professional professional. You said you'd be here at 8.30. Bang, you were here at eight thirty.
1: Um, well, it's it's one thing if you miss your tea time. You know, playing the tournament. <laughs> this so, is not uh... a tea time, as you know. And
0: a lot of your brethren wouldn't think this was particularly important. In fact, probably a pain in the bum.
1: Um, yeah, but you know, you got to do things uh, regardless of how good you are or how bad you are. There are certain things that you should do. Um, you know, looking after sponsors in proams and doing this sort of thing um, is. Just comes with the territory, and uh, you know, I wanted to do it, and that's why I'm here.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and we, we do appreciate you taking the time to do it because
1: it, there's a lot of uh,
0: golf fans don't see a lot of what golf is about. In many ways, the golf course is the sanctuary for the professionals, so that's the time we actually get to enjoy what it is that you do for a living. The rest of it is pretty busy stuff and nothing to do with swings and putts.
1: Uh, we do a lot of stuff off the course, but uh, my pleasure now. Um, we do a little bit of exercise in the morning. We go to a cafe. <laughs> Walk um, to the cafe, that's exercise. Oh, yeah, it depends on how far <laughs> June wants to go and uh, I'll meet her there. But, uh, you know, that's our mornings and after that I go home and what I like to do is go into the corner of the practice fairway and just hit balls for a couple of hours. Alone? Even now. Yeah, it just it just gives me a little bit of release and just, you know, I just love doing it. Is that about hitting golf balls or is that about
0: me time? What's that about? Is it time to reflect and think? What's that about?
1: No, I don't think in my whole career, I've been on the tour now for 40 years and I don't think I've ever not liked hitting golf balls. So um, it's just something that I've always done, something I enjoy doing now and I think I'll enjoy doing in the future. Mm -hmm. It's a unique
0: game, sport, whatever you want to call it in so many ways, golf, isn't it? At 60, there are not many people who can still compete at a high level. At any other sport?
1: Uh, Well, it's diminishing very quickly. Um, (laughs) I don't know about that. You always say this, but... Well, you know, when when I've officially retired and, you know, when people talk to you about, oh, I thought you were retired, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll never play the game again. Mm -hmm. Um, I gave away four-round tournaments. That's pretty much what I did. 2016, if I recall, at the Australian Open. Yep. Yeah, it was a heartbreaking moment for me. Yeah, I was I was suffering injuries for two or three years there, and um, you know, got to a point where you can't compete if you're injured in this game. And I wanted to go out the way I wanted to go out, and um, you know, I I still play quite a few events. I play on the Legends Tour here in Australia. We have about 80 events. I probably play about 25 or 30 of them. Uh, it's still very competitive. We still got Peter Lonard, Peter O'Malley, Peter Fowler, Mike. We still got a great mm-hmm. group of young guys, well, old guys now, <laughs> but the guys that I grew up with, who are still very competitive and play pretty good golf. So um, you know, it's it's just one of those things that I just love doing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned
0: Peter, Peter, Peter and Peter there. The leaderboard at Richmond a couple of weeks ago was Peter, Peter, Peter and
1: Peter and Finchie sent out a great tweet. He said, go Pete.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, Finch,
1: actually Ian Baker Finch has been back for a few events over the last few weeks in Sydney and uh, it's always good to see him back here. But, um, you know, the, the the guys who have always been good, you know, you get in a two or a three round event those better players who've been tournament players all their life are always going to be at the top. Now, I I
0: guess I've alluded to it a couple of times. You won the Australian PGA Seniors Championship at Richmond about two weeks ago now, so that's dated when we're sitting here and talking. Over that final nine holes of that event, are they the same feelings as the final nine holes of the Australian Open or the Australian PGA or the Australian Masters or any of the other... 34, Wikipedia tells me, tournaments that you won as a professional.
1: Um, no, I think it's a little bit different. Um, you know, the Australian Open, your national championship, certainly, you know, probably the tournament in Australia to win. And you have mixed feelings when you're coming down the stretch, when you've got a chance to win. Uh, there's a lot more on the line. You know, if I hadn't won at Richmond, it wouldn't really worry me. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, to to actually win the Australian Open, that is a that 's a real feather in your cap, not saying that not winning the australian p g a you know we all played very well the course mm-hmm. at Richmond was fantastic, I mean the setup and the condition of the course was great. And the way they ran the tournament was exceptional. So, um, you know, I love playing that event. i played it the last three years, and I'll play it the next three years uh, if they have it there. <laughs> yeah,
0: indeed. I'm, and I'm, I'm sure they will. Uh, it's taken off a bit, Senior Golf Injury. That Legends Tour, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? Guys, have a good day. And if you go out and watch or play in one of the programs, you see some pretty handy golf just quietly. Uh,
1: well, it's actually growing. Uh, nearly every year we add to that base of tournaments main reason is uh, the guys have been the, around the game a lot. They know how to treat the sponsors. They know how to treat the amateurs. And I think all the sponsors feel they get more out of the old guys than they do out of the young guys. It's a little less intense, isn't it, than guys at the start of their careers where there's lots to play for. You've been there and yeah. done it,
0: haven't you, all of you blokes?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, I, I hear a lot of stories from the younger guys where they don't even talk to their amateurs during the round of the golf. And, uh, you know, the older guys know that if it wasn't for them, you know, we wouldn't be playing the event and we wouldn't have the money that we're playing for. So, is it, you know, it's just a really good thing to look after the guys that you're playing with. We've talked about that before, Pete, I think.
0: You know, I've interviewed you, a few, interviewed you a few times over the years and that's something that's often come up and I know it's something that you've tried to impress on young players. And I guess that goes to that professional question I was asking before. It feels like it's probably to do with the amount of money in the game and somewhat understandable, but... The focus for the the younger guys is much more on the golf, perhaps, than the professional. Does that make sense, what I'm
1: saying? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it should come hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be giving back as much as you're getting. Um, just because you've turned professional doesn't mean you owe a living. You still have to work see hard. Do you that
0: in- not uh, everywhere, but do you see that in young uh,
1: players? I, you know, I do, and uh, you know it's a bit a bit troublesome. And I often tell the guys. I sat with a bunch of young trainees not so long ago at uh, Royal Pines, and and I said, every sponsorship, apart from Titleist, that I've had in my whole career has come from guys I mm-hmm. played with in in ams because they've had a good day, and you know at the end you never know who you play with, and uh, you know they had a little bit of a shock look on their face saying. And I said, do the right thing and people will look after you.
0: Is that still doable? Does that
1: still apply in the modern era? Or has the game changed so much for the players? Yeah, well, certainly in America it has. Uh, money's really changed the game over there. They're playing between 6 and 10 million every week. It's like a lottery, isn't it? It's a oh, 150-man it's, lottery. <laughs> you know, you re- yeah, you really can't imagine that sort of money every week. But, uh, and I think money has changed the game. It's made guys a little more complacent. You don't have to win. Uh, to have a very good living. And um, you know, I think that's a bit of a downer. Uh, the really great players of the game will always want to win. They don't care about the money. They'll always want to win. But some guys, uh, and I hear it a lot on the secondary tour, why aren't we playing for more than five hundred or $600,000 a week? Because when Tim Fincham set up the secondary tour over in America, he wanted to make sure that it was a reward to get onto the main tour mm-hmm. and play for $6 million. No good putting you in there for $2 million every week and making yourself comfortable and earning a good living. He wanted those guys to strive and get better. And I think that's what we've got to do here in Australia. That's about hunger, isn't it? No, legitimate,
0: actual hunger where you're hungry because you haven't got money to buy food. But that's that That's what that's about,
1: isn't well, it? Well, it's, it's, it's hunger for winning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a two-edged sword. You play well, you don't have to worry about the other mm-hmm. hunger. And, um, you know, but winning tournaments is what every professional should strive for. Jack Nicholas said it at some point. I've read the quote.
0: I know I've read it. That one of the worst things to happen to the PGA Tour was the all-exempt tour. 125 guys guaranteed to have a card every year. Does that touch on sort of what you're talking about there? Mm. there are, mediocre would be the wrong word. But for the level of golf on the PGA Tour, you can be a mediocre PGA Tour player and make an extraordinarily good living for a long time, can't you?
1: Yeah, you certainly could. Uh, The hardest thing now uh, is actually getting on a tour. Mm -hmm. And in America, when you have the all-exempt tour, 125, now you have to go through a full 12 months on the secondary tour before you can qualify for the main tour. Is that a good thing? Well, I don't think it gives the opportunity for guys who are really good to get on a tour and, and play. And as you said, 125, maybe they should drop it back to 80 and give the other 70 guys or 50 guys who are going to qualify an opportunity to play for their living. Uh, because I know there's there's probably 10 young guys here in Australia at this particular time that could be very competitive on the, on the main tour, but they just can't get a break. Can't get a start. It's, as you said, it's probably
0: the hardest thing. That's changed, hasn't it? I recall we've talked before about when you first went to Europe. Tell people about when you turned pro. I think it was 1978, and then you went off to Europe, I think. You tell what how that um, first got
1: the years yeah, on final. Yeah, 1978, I t- turned pro. I played uh, the Australian Open and the Australian PGA were my first two tournaments. I made the cut, but n- made no money. How does that work? That's an
0: unthinkable scenario. Now you can miss <laughs> the cut at the Open Championship and they give you 10000 bucks to cover your yeah. expenses
1: for the week. Yeah, well, you know, they pay down to 60 places, and if there were 65 in the field, you know, because they play 60-plus ties... Uh, those last five never got any money, so um <laughs> the first two tournaments weren 't a real good good rap for me but um uh, I think it was about 83 or 84, Wayne Grady and I said, right we're going to go off and go to Europe. And uh, Sorry, we,
0: So you could play in Australia full-time that first five years, 78 to 84. You, there was enough tournaments to play in and eat out a living in Australia? Yeah,
1: at that time, money was pretty good. We had a lot of state opens. My first win was the South Australian Open in 1979. So that sort of kick-started me, gave me a little bit of money to sort of go and do what I wanted. But Wayne Grady and I took our first step and went to Europe and the qualifying over there was—you rocked up on a Monday. There was probably thirty spots, and if you shot seventy-six, you got it, <laughs> got in the tournament. Um, you know, now if you shoot sixty-six, you probably wouldn't get in the tournament because there's only two or three spots every every week. But um, that sort of started us off, and and Wayne sort of went to America. I I stayed in Europe. Why? Why was that? Pain? Um, I like the camaraderie. The uh, of. Of the nationalities, uh, they had a lot of South Africans, a lot of Australians there as well. Uh, we got on very good with the English, except when you know <laughs> the Asians on. That's right, yeah. Um, but it was all right when we won. But um, you know, it was it was a more diverse. The golf courses weren't as good over in Europe. Um, they certainly are now. They've, they're building some magnificent golf courses now to play tournaments. Um, but it's just the way you know people are more comfortable in different places. Mm. Who did you run with then? So you went with Wayne Grady, and I imagine the two of you, did you
0: travel together? And was that an every week thing, the Monday qualifying? Was there an all-exempt tour at the time, or did everybody have to qualify aside uh, from the top ten? Or?
1: Well, the thing was, if you made the cut, uh, cut and you played the four rounds, you were exempt for the next, for the next tournament. Week. Okay. So, you know, Wayne and I had a pretty good run. We only probably missed one or two tournaments the first year we were there. Um, uh, We did play... um. A few tournaments in Europe, and we didn't really like going over to some of the – so you get to pick and choose. Mm-hmm. They had about 30 tournaments at that stage, so you get to pick to choose the ones that you like and the ones you enjoy. And I think that's the best thing about our game. If you don't like a place, you don't have to go. Mm-hmm. And now there's – Independent contractor It's
0: one of yeah. the great things, isn't it, a yeah. professional
1: golf? Yeah, pretty much. And, um, you know, that's the beauty of our sport is that we get to see a lot. We get to do a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm just so happy I picked this sport. Do you get to see as much as people think? There's an awful lot of travel Monday,
0: practice Tuesday, pro-am Wednesday, six days in the hotel, fly out Sunday, start again Monday, rinse, repeat.
1: Yeah, well, when you first start off, that's all you want to do. You want to play golf full-time. And as you said, you, you travel to the next destination every Monday. You get out there, have your practice round on the Tuesday. You've got the pro-am on Wednesday and then the tournament. Uh, It's only the latter part of my career when I got onto the Champions Tour where you play two weeks, then you might have two weeks off, uh, then you might play three weeks and then have three weeks off. Those sort of times, um, you know, the two weeks off, we were going on cruises. We went up to Alaska and had a had a nice trip up there. And, you know, the first opportunity that I've had to actually look at where we've been. In the world. Yeah. You've been all over the world for yep. 25 years beforehand, hadn't you? Yeah, heaps of times. <laughs> but
0: never really saw anything. And never saw anything. It's crazy, isn't it, when you yeah, think about correct. it that way? You give up an awful lot too, don't you? A lot of people love the idea of travel. And travel's fantastic for holidays, isn't it? But travel for a living is a very different thing.
1: If you're in a plane every week, yeah, you certainly turn off very quickly. Can't um, have a dog? Well, you well, can, but you don't get to see it. But it's uh, it's when you miss flights or they cancel flights, it mm-hmm. sort of upsets the whole thing. And, uh, you know, it can be very disruptive to your your lifestyle and, and what you need to be doing. That's so why you need to buy your own plane, Pete.
0: Yeah, I never <laughs> You thought, didn't quite I, get there, no, did you? I've, <laughs>
1: had, I've had a ride in a couple. But,
0: <laughs> I'm sure you have. Uh, I'm sure you have. Who did you run with back in those days, those, uh, those early days on the European tour? It's obviously very different to what it is now, or
1: very different tour to what it what well, it is now. But. Well, the great thing was that the Aussies always stuck together, and um, you know most of the guys were going to be set in Europe, so we all brought houses in the same estate at mm-hmm. Bagshot. Okay. Um, so who was in there? It was you? There was myself, Michael Clayton, mm-hmm. Peter Fowler, uh, Peter O'Malley uh steven leaney oh there was there there was probably 12 guys okay and what we used to do is when we go to a tournament especially on the continent it'd be somebody's on sunday night we used to come back it was somebody's area uh house that everybody came back to Uh and and the girls if they never went to europe because europe wasn't a great place to go they would all organize a barbecue so we'd all rock up from the airport. We all go to whoever house it was, and we'd all get together and sit down, and fantastic. and that's the way we finished our weekend. Yeah. So it was a great camaraderie amongst the guys there, and it was fantastic. Yeah, indeed. I get the sense there's probably a lot less of that these days. Um, well, on the Legends Tour, oh, not on the Legends yeah, Tour, obviously. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, they don't do any of that. Could you? Do you think? I don't think the guys would do that.
0: Could they? I, I, I wonder. I'm interested in this notion of you know the games changed so much and all the money and that's all true, but people don't really change, do they? Blokes could mm. be friendlier, couldn't they? Or
1: yeah, I think they're in smaller groups now, though. You know, you have your pick, your friends, the guys who you travel with, your guys who you room with you when you first pers- when you first start, yeah. and that's a difference now. You you know a lot of the really good players travel with about half a dozen guys. Yeah,
0: that's right. Mm. And can afford to, and generally in their own plane, yep, which true. is. <laughs> Which is nice. Um, when you're travelling in those early days in Europe, did you do a lot of travelling together? Was it a lot of splitting expenses? I get the sense that money's always an issue in professional golf, obviously, but that, that the lack of it maybe in some ways helped some guys. Would
1: you, would you agree with that? Um, yeah, it was tough starting off. Um, I can remember um, Ozzie Moore, Jerry Taylor and myself brought a car and we were going to go to the French Open, then down to Monte Carlo for the Monte Carlo Open. Mm-hmm. And um, how much was the car, Pete? Do you recall? Well, it was about no. We got it off a guy who looked after you know, who who sold us the car, but then would buy, buy it back, back when you'd finished it six months. Uh-huh. So it really didn't cost us a lot of money, and that's what we were aiming for because we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, God, the miles we did around Europe, and how many times we got lost. Um, we made the trip probably double what it should have been, but. No yeah. GPS in the phone, is it? It's an no, unthinkable, yeah. No, we were just going <laughs> off roadmaps. <laughs> but, um, you know, you look back on those times, and those are the times you really cherish. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because at the time, you think they're nightmarish. Yep, but 20 years do.
0: later, you think they're the most fun that you've ever had. Mike Clayton once told me that when you were all sort of schoolboys before you turned professional, uh, the rankings went like this there was Peter Sr., Daylight, Daylight, Daylight. And then there was the rest of them all fighting for fifth place. Is that your recollection of, uh, <laughs> of how things were in the amateur days?
1: Uh, well, as an amateur, I, I I couldn't believe the low scores that I used to shoot around some of the courses. And I actually played, first time I ever met Mike Clayton, I played him in an interstate series at um, Royal, uh, Royal Queensland. Did you get a word in? Um, no, at that stage he wasn't ripping every tree he looked at, but, um, he was six foot three and I was, you know, a little, little skinny, little five footer. And, um, you know, when I, I think I was six or seven under when we finished the match and he, you know, he just looked at me and like, I was strange, like I was from outer space, but, uh, the amateur days I, I really did play well.
0: And what do you, th- can you put that down to anything, Pete? Because, and we'll talk about this shortly. There's golf swings and techniques, and you know, obviously you've worked with Gary Edwin for a long time, and there's lots of things to learn about the golf swing and whatnot, but there's an innate ability that some players seem to have, and Jordan Speet's one that I think of, just an ability to, almost a grudging, get the ball in the hole. It's almost malicious, and you, I would think you're that kind of player. Where does um, it come from?
1: Well, when I was, you know, its it comes down to how much you want it mm. and how much you want to work at it. And I can remember, you know, years ago uh, when I first started and when I really got hooked into the game, I was in grade 10. And I said, this is what I want to And I often talked to my dad um, saying that this is what I wanted to do.
0: Was so, he supportive
1: of that? Um, well, he was a professional soccer player in England. So he be- understood. Well, was- before the war. Yeah. And when the war came, he joined the forces and never played again. So um, he... Uh, he- He knew what I wanted to do. He knew how hard I worked at it because I left before light and I came home when it was dark. And he knew that I was practicing every day. So uh, grade 11, I went every Wednesday because that was sports day and
0: uh <laughs> so the, your, your attendance record was 42 oh, days or something
1: and i got into some serious trouble i I got a, a made of mine to write a school note saying that i'd be away for three months in america <laughs> with my parents and i won the johnny uh, I, I won the gary player junior classic at pacific in brisbane name in the paper yeah oh so, that's dangerous so they knew i was at home and it came down to uh you know i got home and and mum said oh how was school today and Oh, she and didn't I, know. Oh, no. She didn't know that I was wagging school. Oh, okay. And I'd been off for them because mum and dad both worked. And I'd been off for about three months. And uh, she, she came and she said, uh, oh, how was school today? And I said, oh, yeah, well, we're doing some really tough stuff. at that. And she said, you lying little bugger. She said, I've just been talking to your headmaster. You got, because what I used to do at lunchtime, I used to come home and intercept the mail. Anything from the school, I used to come in, I used to rip up so that, uh, you know, mum and dad didn't know what was going on. Great 'd you. My goodness. <laughs> so she said, uh, wait until your father comes home. Oh, and dear. I thought, <laughs> and, you know, and with the military, dad used to give us the webbing belt, with the okay. the thick black belt with brass brass buckles Ouch, on. Property. Proper discipline. So I raced into the bedroom and I put about four pairs of undies on, a couple of pairs of pants, my jeans, and I was ready for dad when he came home. So dad comes home he comes into the room and I'm one of six kids and he shuts the door and I could hear all the other kids come to the door cause they knew I was going to get a thrashing. And dad says where have you been? I said well I've been on the course. And he said well, what every day? He said dad you know I've been at the course every day. He said you're not doing anything bad? I said no. And he said oh okay that's fine. And I thought you beauty I'm going to get away with this and he starts taking off his belt. And I thought I oh, he said well you know your mum wants me to give you a thrashing. So I I turn around, and I'm waiting for the first one. He goes, whack. And I'm thinking, geez, that didn't hurt. How how good is this padding I've put on? And I turn around, and Dad's smashing my mattress in my bed. And he just turned to me, and he said, if I'm doing this, he said, you better start crying. And the worst thing about it, though, was, um, you know, I couldn't come out of the room because I was laughing so much.
0: You know, but <laughs> five spectators outside
1: waiting that, to see how
0: battered you yeah, were. Yeah,
1: well, that's, you know, and that sort of gave me an avenue that I started, um, you know, I got a nighttime job. I worked from seven until two in the morning, just cleaning offices and that sort of stuff. So, uh, so I could practice during the day. On a serious note, Pete, that's a pretty big moment, isn't it? I imagine you might have reflected on that. That was the one times. of the, yeah, and I I often go back to it and remember that that was probably the torn, turning point that said righty, I'm good to go. Hmm. I spoke to
0: Peter Lonard about this, and his dad was I think in superannuation, he said, and to this day I'm not Pete doesn't think he really grasps that you can play golf as a job. It's not a proper job. Doesn't sound like that was for your dad. He understood that you could have it as a proper job. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, um, I actually talked to Peter, and, and I asked him why he hadn't been on the, uh, on the Champions Tour, why he wasn't going to the Champions Tour. He's got a new baby. He's new, a new and a A new wife, and, you know, it's, it's very restrictive when it comes to that. And he was telling me he had his father-in-law over the other day, and, uh, you know, he's looking at his house because Pete's got a really nice house wow. here in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. And he says, what do you do? And he says, oh, I play golf. And he goes, what? You get a house like this playing golf? And Pete says, I really think he thinks I'm a drug dealer. (laughs) He really does. So we were all laughing. He told about half a dozen of us in the locker room. God, it was so funny.
0: It's funny. I asked him about this too. Are you a reflective type? Do you look back on that? I asked him about his relationship with his dad because I feel like, I know the Americans are big on it and it can be a bit um, sort of malty for us in Australia. But they're important things, aren't they? That moment with your dad, I suspect. And what did you take from that perhaps for your own kids as well? Because golf's only a small part of life,
1: isn't it? Really? Yeah. Well, you know, coming from from such a large family, we actually weren't very close. The kids weren't close. We're closer now than what we were when we were growing up. And when I met my wife, I think that was a turning point because she came from a very close knit family. And when I saw how they reacted, I said, "That's how I. If I ever have a family, that's how I would love it to be." And that's exactly how I I, I tune my family up, my kids. Uh, I've got three of the best kids you've ever seen. And the beauty about it, they still love having us around, Mm -hmm. which is great. If my memory serves correct, you kind of almost took your 40s off from golf
0: to be there for your kids, did you not?
1: Um, When I was 42, um, I sat down with Bob Shearer one day and, and Jack Newton, and they said the only thing they ever regretted in their whole career was not seeing their kids grow up and do the things that they were doing at school and sport and So I decided not to play any international golf from 42 when my kids started high school Uh, because most of the time they actually travel with us before they started high school. So um, I wanted to be there. I wanted to watch them play. Uh, My daughter made the Australian gymnastics team. Um, My son was playing rugby for the school. And, you know, just doing going down and seeing all those events and watching them play sport was pretty fulfilling. I'm glad I did it. But – when um, when my oldest daughter got out of school um, and then my second daughter, Jasmine, she finished grade 12, uh, I thought that was another time. I was 49 years old and I was ready to go oh, and play yeah. again. And you,
0: Well, you had a whole second career, so we'll, we'll come back to that yep. uh, in a moment. Um, was that a difficult decision to make? Golf, for a professional, is an extraordinarily selfish pursuit and must be if you want to be successful, mustn't it? Everybody around you must be about your career in many ways is that true and was that a tough decision to say at 42
1: Uh, well i said that to my wife when i first first met i said golf's number one Mm -hmm. i said you'll be number two so um (laughs) you know i didn't know how it was going to go down but um you know that quickly changed um she was so supportive um, you know, the early days are always tough, and you know I can remember being in Sweden. We were actually sharing a meal the first year that we we went over there because wow. we couldn't afford two of them. So you know, wow, we, that's pretty intense. Well, <laughs> you know, and on know, the other side of the well, world too. Well, you know, uh, you know it's it's a scary thing when you look back and you think, geez, you know, we were, we had nothing in those days. And um, you know, she carried that week. She carried the bag for the first two or three years I was on tour over there.
0: How does that work?
1: Um, yeah, we. Let's w- try it. <laughs> yeah, but she, she she just did her job, and uh, you know, all credit to her. You know, uh, we ended up winning our first tournament in Sweden, uh, which was the Malmo Classic, and um, you know that sort of set us off. We had enough money to do whatever we wanted to do then.
0: What was that like? First tournament win.
1: Um, well, it was funny because I I got over there and we were not We were down. We had no money. We had an airfare back to Australia. That's all we had. We had enough money for that week. And I hit it out of bounds on the very first hole that made triple bogey. Nice. And I, <laughs> and I thought, here we go. I thought, God, we're going to be flying back and, you know, we're going to – because we used to stay at June's parents' place uh, because we couldn't afford a house in those days and we were only home for a couple of months a year. So uh, ended up, uh, yeah, we ended up winning the tournament by a couple of shots and made 14,000 pounds, which was, you know, $30,000 in those days was a lot of money. It's not chump change anymore yeah. either. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, we, we guaranteed our whole year from there. And with that relief, I started to play really well and it just flowed on from there. So what happens between holing out
0: for a seven on the first green and holding up the trophy on the 72nd hole? What unfolded between? You've missed a fairly important chunk of the story there, which probably speaks a lot to what people would think of you as a golfer. Tenacious.
1: Yeah, well, I sort of thought after the first round, I think I shot 73 the first round, and I thought, well, if I don't make the cut, we're in a... And I ended up going out and shooting 66 the second round, and then 66 the third round, and then... And are you
0: uh, thinking about that? Uh, During the second round, are you thinking, if I miss the cut here, we're done, and then making another birdie? Or are you just playing and add them up at the end of the day?
1: Well, I, uh, the main thing was I had to get off to a good start. If I didn't get off to a good start, I was history. And I managed to, you know, first five holes, I was two or three under and, you know, went on from there. And once I knew that I'd made the cut, it's amazing. You know, when you're, when you're on the bottom and you know you're going to make a cut, there's such a relief. Um, you know, making cuts is a big thing. And, uh, you know, because you know you're going to get a little bit of money at the end of the week. Mm. But uh, to actually win the tournament and set me up for the rest of the year, that was a key moment in our in our careers. Did winning that first tournament
0: feel like what you would expect it to feel like? You've won a lot of tournaments since, and I imagine they're all different. But what did
1: you expect it to feel like? Because um, your whole life's been set up for this moment, hasn't it? Yeah, I was pretty quiet after it. Um, you know, we all went back to the hotel. Uh, everybody got together. We had some drinks. But I was very quiet. I was just... Just reflecting on, you know, what could have been if I hadn't have won or if I'd played badly and missed mm-hmm. the cut, you know, what could have happened. I never slept for probably two days just thinking about scenarios. After the after, win, After I won. Almost like that yep. adrenaline rush you get after
0: a near car accident. The yep. real fear comes yep. after the dangers passed in a funny way.
1: Yeah, well, still now, even when I won the Australian Open and the Masters, that night I cannot sleep. I go over certain things in my mind. And, what do you think that's about, Pete? That's right. a bit weird, isn't it? No, you know, you, you sort of think, oh, yeah, I hit a great shot here at number 10 and made, made birdie there, but, you know, then that up and down saved me. And, you know, and you go, you go through all the whole week and you keep going through the whole week. And, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. The mind is the greatest asset in golf, and it's also the greatest danger, isn't it? Time
0: to think and what you think.
1: Yeah, the, yeah. Be, the best players are always the best thinkers. Mm-hmm. And that's why Nicholas, Tiger, uh, Norman, they're all mentally strong, um, you know, and that's why they were such great players. Mm-hmm. Is
0: that something you were aware of whilst you were playing? Because clearly you're mentally good as well, I can recall. We'll talk about it in more depth shortly. But when you won the Masters in 2015, the age of 57, which is, <laughs> I still, when I say that, I find that just such an extraordinary feat. But you had some moments down the stretch there that could have gone wrong. You drove it under the tea tree on the seventeenth, if I recall correctly.
1: Um, well, the day I'm fi- the actual turning point was my my shot into the tenth hole. I hit it to about three inches. They changed the par five it was to a, a th- hybrid, it was a hybrid yeah, too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, to a par four. And to make four on that hole, like if it's a par five, you make four every day. But if it's a par <laughs> fi- par four, you make five every, every day. day. So I hit this shot in there and it finished really close and I made birdie and that was a great sort of runoff. And uh, I birdied 13 and I, I hit two good woods down 14 and I said to my son, who was caddy and Mitchell, I said, if we can make birdie here, because we hadn't seen the leaders board for a couple of holes and uh, I, I said, I reckon we got a chance of winning this. So I didn't end up making birdie there, but um, I made par there. I made par on 15 had a good drive up 16, hit it on the green on 16, and I thought, jeez, I wonder where I am. I got up and going, and I know there's a leaders board behind the 16th green. I get up there and I'm three shots in front. <laughs> and I think it's really the only first time in my whole career that I actually panicked. Oh, really? Yeah, so I two-putted that and I thought, and I've been driving it, and normally the driver's the best club in my bag, and I've been just drive it down 17, which is a lot easier now than it and used to be. It used to, to be. be, yeah, very much. So I'm looking at it and I, I think, geez, I'm three in front, you know, da-da-da. I said, Mitch, give us the three. And I hit it straight in the crap. And I'm thinking, and, you know, Mitchell was, Mitchell was sort of had the hand on the head cover and he wasn't game enough to say anything. And when we got down there, I was lucky I could actually chip it out and I hit it on the green and, uh, you know, I made a great up and down on the last hole. Uh, from where I was. Left
0: bunker, if I remember?
1: Yeah, from, yeah, it went a little bit long. They stick that pin on the front there, and it's mm-hmm. got a little dip behind mm-hmm. it. My iron shot landed and went into the back bunker. But, um, yeah, getting up and down there. But, you know, having, having your son on the bag's a big thing mm-hmm. as well. You know, he was on there when I won the Australian Open. That's right, in 2012. And, um, you know, it was it, – that's probably the highlight of my, my whole career is having him caddy for me.
0: My memories – I was at that Masters at Huntingdale. And I remember it was it was like the it was like the Pied Piper. The crowds realised it about the twelfth or the thirteenth. Well, senior might be a chance here, and you were the fantastic underdog would be the wrong word, but the unlikely yeah, winner really yeah. in the in a field yeah. of flat bellies, you can't expect the fifty seven yeah. year old. And they were sort of drawn to you. Did you notice that 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 crowd
1: building over those last five holes? I noticed it on fourteen. Yeah. yeah, and um, you know they pretty much came from everywhere. Yeah. But um, you know, you should be put out to pass you at fifty-seven. <laughs> but, but you know, it's game is golf is that game where a score will always do well. You can't do that in tennis, Pete. No, it's impossible. No. Even Federer is not going to be competing at fifty-seven, let alone winning. But you know, I've always been one of the shortest guys off the tee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter where I've played in the world, but I, and that has always been my motto: if I can put a score on the board, then somebody's got to try and beat it. And I never worried about guys hitting at fifty yards past me. It sounds so simple. Why is it so difficult? We know players
0: get caught up in particularly in the modern area where where distance is such a big deal. If you don't hit at it three hundred, it's almost impossible to compete week in week out on mo- the two major tours because the courses yeah. are set up for guys who carry it
1: yeah, well, if you don't 300. hit at three yeah if you don't hit at three hundred now you're not competitive on the main no, tours that's right. But from way back, you've always competed
0: just with that simple thought. What's so hard about that? It's it's one of the great conundrums in golf, isn't it? Because the golf ball doesn't know, does it? Nor does the hole. You can hit a hybrid to three inches like you did on the 10th at Huntingdale, just as, well, not quite as easily as a wedge, but it's not like you can't do it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And that's, and that's what I feel. You know, to shoot 66 around a golf course, somebody's got to play pretty well to shoot 65. Yeah. So I always felt if I put a score on the board, and, you know, there's there's been a few guys. Craig Perry was exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And Craig has always been – see, Craig and I have uh, are pretty similar. Whenever we had a chance to win a tournament, we wouldn't go away. Mm. Uh, we knew that we, for some reason that we would hang in there until the death. So what is the reason, Pete? That's what well, everybody wants to know. Can you bottle that well, and sell it? There's a lot of players well, that pay a lot of money for that. Well, we don't know. Whether it comes down to just keeping – your game together, going back to what you know, or whether it's just your mental ability to, you know, look after the nerves coming down the stretch. But Craig Parry and I seem to never go away when we had a chance to win. And I think that's that's more, um, how can I say it, uh, that's more satisfying to me than actually winning the tournament, knowing that I don't crumble.
2: Mm-hmm
0: because one of the things that happens, of course, over a career then, which is what's happened for Tiger, is others realise you're not going to crumble. Now they're trying to do something special because they know you're not going to come backwards, yeah. and so it starts to feed itself, doesn't yeah, it? that's exactly right. Yeah. Interesting stuff. I know I've asked you before about that, and I know you've never had an answer as to what that no, is, but I, it's uh,
1: like <laughs> you lucky don't, to be born with it? or Well, I don't think anybody knows the answer, but no. some players, and you know, as you alluded there, the better players have, uh, have got more of it. And the, the better players... It, That doesn't mean
0: the more physically gifted, does it? No, it doesn't. In fact, it means almost the opposite. In some ways, being the most physically gifted, I imagine, can be, but you you have expectations.
1: Well, you've got to be in control of your emotions, and I think Nicholas did that the best. Um, Tiger never got ruffled. You know, he he slammed a few clubs and that, but he never got ruffled. When it come down to the stretch, you knew he was going – he was – Too tough to beat. It's the great old Nicholas. He knew I was going to win. I knew I was going to win. And he knew that
0: I knew that he knew I was going to win. So it's a a mind game at the top, isn't it? It certainly is. Let's talk about some of the physical. Of course, your swing is somewhat unorthodox. Anybody could pick you. Anybody who knows golf could pick you out of a lineup of, of 30 players. How did that develop? Has anybody, have you ever wanted to change it? Have you ever fallen for that trap of wanting to perhaps do something different, make it look a bit different? And what are the keys that make your golf swing work? Are you one who's into the golf swing?
1: Um, I think in the early days, I practiced hard enough to make anything work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same as Jim Furyk, uh, very unorthodox, Lee Trevino. These guys played a lot. They practiced a lot and made anything work. But the basics are pretty much the same. Uh, We all deliver at the ball pretty much the same. So uh, we just have different routes that we get back (laughs) back to the ball. But um, if you slow my swing down, um, it's not that bad until I actually hit the ball and then I straighten. And uh, everybody said, oh, he comes up after he's, you know, when he hits the ball. I, well, it's actually after I hit the ball. And I think that's why pretty much I haven't had many major injuries Um it's uh, it's a game where, you know, the modern-day golfer now works so hard at the gym, I think mm-hmm. they actually overdo it. so they are going to get in trouble for that. You've plenty of
0: got in trouble for saying that before, well, Pete. You know you that.
1: Know, I, mean, I think they go too hard at it. I mean, gym work's important, mm-hmm. but I think they go too hard at it. And I, I think that's why... You know, Norman had so many injuries. Is that he worked out all the time, and uh, same with Tiger. You know, they just work out. They put too much pressure on their bodies.
0: Four back surgeries at the age of forty-three for a bloke who's unbelievably fit and strong. Yep, Yep. something's causing that, isn't it?
1: It certainly is. And uh, you know, golf is a tough sport as it is. Um, You know, a lot of requirements on rotation and that sort of stuff. So uh, something's got to give eventually. What
0: did you ever do much in the way? I know the gym became more popular probably in the nineties and. Greg was probably at the forefront of that more generally. There would always been players who'd done the gym, but it wasn't a widespread thing. Were you ever a part of that? And I I can see you grinning there. But if not, 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 why not? And have you been more so later in career?
1: I knew a guy named Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Probably (laughs) beat him him in a match one day, did you? That's about as close as I got to a gym. But, um, you know, I, I did a little bit. I didn't do a lot, but I did a little bit and stretching um, bob Shearer told me that stretching increased his career mm, by 10 or 15 years yeah i didn't do any stretching either you know i i was sort of i was a restauranter oh, Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to play and then go and feed the machine. My,
0: my mate, Doug, one of his favourite sayings, it was Tommy Radonicus, the famous rugby league coach. Someone asked him about stretching. He said, mate, I never saw Lonro with her leg up on a rail. So
1: <laughs> if, <laughs> if she could do it. Well, see, this is all modern day stuff now. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it you... overdone, overhyped. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no. I think it's a serial. I mean, there are real athletes now. Mm. Um, you know, when I first started off, you know, you'd you'd play, you probably you wouldn't even go to the practice fairway when I first. A lot of the guys uh, afterwards. Afterwards, um, you know, you go into the clubhouse, you'd have a f- few beers, and you know the guys would talk about how many the next morning on the practice fair. <laughs> oh yeah, I had a dozen pots last <laughs> night, you know. But now it is a real science. Not, not a lot of that going, is it? Yeah, no, it's a science now, and uh, as we alluded before, you know, you travel with. You know, nutritionist, yeah. physio, psychologist, physio, psychologist. You know, and uh, trainer, yeah. bo-
0: Lower body trainer, yep. upper body trainer. Yeah, who's for the stretching and who's for that and that? Yep. It's it, is it are the players better? Is the game better? Pete, I know it's different. If if professional golf is ultimately entertainment, which is what it is, you get paid to entertain. Is it more entertaining than it used to be? Where does the entertainment come from? Is it from the personalities of the players or the shots they play? Is it some combination of all of that that you can't really pull apart? When you look at – I remember my, I asked Mark Leishman about underachieving, which is, which is the wrong word, but he sort of got the idea of the question. He, he, he relayed a story about Jason Day. He said you know, Jason Day was the world number one at the time. And he said, I look at Jason, and I know Jason well, and he said, I've been at barbecues with Jason, and he said no to a second beer because that's what it takes I'm not that guy. yep is that was that always true? Has
1: it changed in became better for it? It has definitely changed. I think I think the the guys these days are more mechanical. Um, they're more regimented in what they need to do and how to go about it. Um, you know, with all the people that they travel with there's certain guidelines where they can't go out and go in and you know and it it's pretty strict. If you want to be really good, You've got to stick to that because you know that 20 or 30 other guys are doing exactly the same thing.
0: If you'd been born 30 years later, would you be that guy?
1: Um, I wish – well, if I was over six foot tall, yes, I, I, I would be that guy. I would – if I wanted to be the best, that's what I would go through. And if you weren't over six foot tall, I,
0: I don't feel like that would stop you trying.
1: I'd probably look for another sport because five foot six guys don't compete anymore what's McElroy, five seven he's 5'9". Five, nine. Five, nine. Yeah. No, yeah He's but, a ta- he's a tall boy. you know there's an exception but you know yeah, there's there's probably two or three guys that are small guys that still hit it a long way and to be competitive on on any tour now, you have to bomb it is that is that
0: more one dimensional than it used to be long hitters have always had the advantage we know that yep. but is the game more one
1: dimensional now and does that
0: threaten potentially that? entertainment aspect of it?
1: Well, there's so many of them now. Um, you know, it's just smash it, find it, hit it again. Uh, the guys believe that if they hit it so far down there, they can get a wedge or a nine iron on the green from any any position that they are. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's made a lot of our courses obsolete, especially here in Australia on the sand belt, uh, because they come down, they're hitting wedges into every hole. You know, there's and no... That means the angles don't matter. No, it doesn't. Unless
0: they're like concrete, the greens, in which case even the right angles don't help you much, do they? (laughs) If they're that firm.
1: And the only defence that most of the courses have got now is they harden up their greens and put a little bit of rough so that if they're coming from the rough that they can't hold the Mm. green. But, um, you know, the guys are are great now. They're they're unbelievable. I mean... uh, this is the problem with this whole debate is people think you're
0: taking shots at the players. It's not that. They're, they're at least as good as any player of oh, any other generation. Oh, they've, they've, they're probably better than, But they've know, mastered a game that's asking different questions, isn't yep. it? It's the
1: game that's changed, not yep. the players. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: mm. yeah, I wonder about that.
1: Is there a way back? Um, technology's got to be looked at. And uh, Nicholas has always said it. They've got to do something with the ball, something with the driver. Have you always been in that camp or are you um, a late convert to that notion?
0: Yeah. Some will tell you, who cares? Leave it alone, what's wrong
1: with you? Well, I'm I'm probably a little late to worry about it but I don't see why somebody who hits it over 108 miles an hour should have an advantage of somebody who hits it over 100, uh, 100 because technology is only geared for people who swing at more than 108 uh, miles an hour. And none of them are sitting at this table, are they, Pete? No. Oh, no, certainly no. I'm not.
0: No. <laughs> You're going with no. your workouts? Or? So,
1: so technology for the last 20 years has done nothing for me. I hit it pretty much the same distance. Or, or ironically for the average player, for the, the big-headed driver certainly
0: helped get it on the face more, but yep. it hasn't helped straighten yep. it. It's certainly helped Brooks Kepka
1: and Adam Scott. Well, they you know, Kepka swings it at 124. He gets maximum. Yeah. He can compress the driver. He can compress the ball. He gets an extra 30 or 40 metres. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's incredible. We'll leave all of that because that's an ongoing yep. thing.
1: Yep. We touched on it earlier, a second career.
0: So you had that sort of decade, not off, but playing predominantly locally. Still competitive, remarkably, for playing little competitive golf. Extraordinary. But you had this whole second career. On the, PG, on the US Champions Tour, or PGA Tour Champions as now. called. tell us about that. The decision to go, you got through the qualifying school, and my understanding is that the two toughest qualifying schools in the world to get through are the Japan Ladies Tour, where well, you're not much chance at that, mm. and the US Champions Tour. Is that true? Because I think you can get through there, can't you, and all you earn is the right to Monday qualify? Um,
1: US Champions Tour, when I went, uh, 2009, uh, there was 410 players for five spots. Wow. Uh, it was four courses, uh, hundred I think there was just over 100 on each course, and they took 16 from each course. And then the guys who didn't make the money on the regular, on, on the main uh, Champions Tour went into the final qualifying. So you had 100 really good players playing for five spots in the final qualifying, and we played at Scottsdale, Arizona. And, uh, you know, it's pretty cutthroat. If you finish sixth, you don't get a start. So um, I, I can clearly remember I, I was playing pretty well. I made double bogey up the ninth hole, par five. I backed it off the green into the water and made seven. And we looked at the board and there was 12 guys that had a chance of getting in. And I was running about ninth. And uh, I shot five under the backside. And it was, it, it was so funny coming down the stretch, a re- couple of really tough holes. 16 was along par three. Then I hit a rescue into about 10 feet and hold it. 17 was a par 5 um, that I made, made birdie, but 18 was a really difficult hole. They had so many double bogeys there. It was where the green actually went around the edge of the water and the pin was in the far left corner. And you just you just do not go at that flag. It's no fun in a social round. And I knew I was going well, and I I thought, you know, probably I only have to make four to probably get one of the five spots because they had no leaders boards around. You really couldn't tell what was going on. But five under, four under going into the last hole, and I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to hit four on, I'll just hit it out of the right and hopefully two putt. I hit the uh, semi-pull hook, sort of, and finished eight feet from the hole. And the two guys I'm playing with goes, I can't believe you went for that flag. And I thought, well, I wasn't going for the flag. Anyway, ended up making the putt and, you know, leading the qualifying. So, uh, you know, uh, happy days. And then you built a really extraordinary career as a Champions
0: Tour player. Oh, so close in a couple of senior tour majors. And the one that I can't help but go back to, I'm sure you do too, is the one against Corey Pavin. Tell me about that
1: shot that he hit. I think it was in the playoff hole. Right? Uh, no, it wasn't in the playoff. It was during uh, the Yeah, it was on the – Because you were playing with him, weren't you? You were yeah. in the same group. Yeah. yeah, there was Corey Paver, myself, and Mark Kalkovecchia. Uh-huh. And Mark and I had hit it on the green. It was long path three, and he'd hit this little choppy wood up there, went over the back, went down this hill, went over the car path up against a tree – and he, he couldn't hit it. No, Literally, it was in a hole, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it, was, it was literally unplayable. He, he could not hit it, and he was wondering what to do, and he he sort of getting left-handed and right-handed, and Mark and I just looking at each other, and anyway, he took the mad swipe with the back of a club, left-handed, and this bank's about 25 feet high, and it's got grass, and it speared out, hit the only real big rough patch. On the bank, popped out and finished about six feet away, and he held it for par. Of course he held it, you know. And <laughs> I ended up losing to him in the playoff. In the playoff, yeah. Mm. What do you think?
0: For those not familiar who haven't seen the shot, it would be somewhat like hitting it over the back of ten West at Royal Melbourne, wouldn't it? Into the trees over there, and somehow conjuring up a left-handed shot that hits in the bank, climbs the hill, and somehow finishes near the flag.
1: Well, it was. I mean, you would never. You wouldn't probably never get it on the green again. No. If you ever had to try and hit that shot again, you would probably never hit it. Yeah, and then he goes on and wins a major in a playoff
0: on the back of a shot. Like that's a funny game, golf, isn't it? Not funny, ha ha. Funny, peculiar. Yep. What was what was playing those events, and particularly those couple of majors where you went close? What were your sort of feelings about those? Were they did they become your majors? Obviously, you weren't playing in the major majors then. The the flat
1: belly majors were they the majors? Were they that important? Um, I I think. (laughs) I think to a lesser extent. Uh, you know, the majors are the majors. Senior majors, you know, they just put a title to it. And, you know, if you won the British Open and you won the British Open seniors, there's no comparison. Um, but uh, the one that I really let get my way, uh, same course that Wayne Grady won his USPGA Championship, Shoal Creek, mm-hmm. Birmingham, Alabama. Fantastic golf course. Um, I lost to Tom Lehman in the playoff. And the first playoff hole, I actually had a good chance to make birdie, and it hit a, hit a pretty good putt, and he got it up and down from over the right hand side, and then I ended up making bogey the the second time around. But um, is there fate involved in that, Pete? You're clearly good enough. Well, I'd I'd actually had a good run because I'd won nearly every playoff I'd actually played in, and then when I had I had three playoffs over in the Champions Tour and lost every one of them. So. Um, you know, fit, anybody can win a playoff, you know, you've just got to be lucky on that hole. Yeah.
0: It's probably the only hole in your resume in some,
1: many ways, isn't it, that you didn't win on the championship, and you really... Can't. Well, winning in America would have sealed, you know, and, and looking back on my whole career now, I'm kicking myself that I didn't actually play in America.
0: Yeah. Would you... Why didn't you, and would it have suited you?
1: Um.
0: The causes, the culture, everything about that tour. Well,
1: well, at the beginning, I actually went through the tour school in 1985 and finished fifth in the the tour school and got my card. And I played the first couple of months. I didn't play very well. Um, And nobody really knows the reason why I left America. Oh, okay. News. Um, You know, uh, my wife was treated very badly. By... By other wives uh, oh, on, the, really? on the tour, not the not the main tour players, but the guys who are sort of on, on, the, fringes. on the
0: fringes. Was that common?
1: Did others? Well, I think sort of? I think it was because there wasn't there weren't many foreigners on that tour at that at that stage, and they all thought that we were taking a spot away from an American. It was an American tour, and that and in the end, she didn't even want to go to the golf course. And that's pretty much the, the. That's horrific, isn't it? That's pretty much the reason why I left and went back to Europe. Clearly, it wasn't like that in Europe. Obviously, no, because it was. There's a so cosmopolitan many cosmopolitan place, so many different just nationalities. Just yeah, I've never. Uh,
0: you heard stories about similar things happening to Norman. People telling him to go home when he first got to America. And I don't doubt that some of that happened, but it's always intrigued me that guys who play golf for a living, whose entire life is around competition and winning, don't see that it's just another competitor. That would you want a spot on a tour if you had it because you were keeping others out, not because you'd earned it? Yeah, it. Seems odd, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, well, it is odd, and as I said, it was only the guys who were at the bottom yeah, end.
0: Yeah,
1: the is. guys at the top never worry about. no, They, they welcome any competition because yeah. they know they want to be competitive. They know they're they're the best. That's quite sad, isn't it? You- and uh, you know. I look at my relationship with my wife, and if she's not happy, I wouldn't be happy. Right. And uh, that, that not many people know, but that is wow. the that is the reason I left America and that's, went and played in Europe. That's really really sad. It's clearly
0: been and remains a strong relationship, Pete. Uh, you and June, thirty six
1: years yeah. now. It's
0: uh, you know she's been a she's been a rock. Could she you? Uh, and every golfer will say, "Not, of course not." But could you have done it? Could you have been as successful without her? And we often hear that and. Jack talks about Barbara all the time and the important role that she played. What are the mechanics of that? What's the real, what's the truth of that?
1: Um, well, it's having a friend. Uh, golf is a very lonely sport, especially when you're travelling a lot, and it's always good to have somebody there. And if you can have somebody there who can support you, know what you need, um, and and just be there for company. Uh, that she's is, sitting in the car waiting for you or uh, in a cafe across the uh, road, Pete. Uh, yeah, no, she's great. Um you know, we're we're still very close. We we holiday a lot now, so you know we never take the golf clubs, which oh, is great.
0: You've earned it. Does she so, play golf? She no. got any interest in the game? No. no. Last no. thing she wants
1: to see. When well, she- she's been caddying for me in these legends events here okay. in Australia, so it's. Uh it's hard to leave her anyway she she wants to go we want to be together and uh, you know i'm i'm just thankful that i that i got such a good girl i hope you've been playing with a half set or
0: you get letting her take a cart. oh no, oh no she doesn't carry him <laughs> no, I, I
1: uh
0: i hope not we spoke ahead of the Masters back in 2015, the one that you won, because yep. there was this possibility that you could make the clean sweep of Australia's big three tournaments, the Open, the PGA and the Masters, after the age of 50. I'll be honest, when I rang you to talk about that story and sort of suggest it, I didn't really think that you were necessarily going to compete. I asked you could you win and you said yes. Did you believe that at the time in the lead leader? Um,
1: well, if you look at the tournaments that I won, um, the PGA, um, the Open at the Lakes, and huntingdale you don't need length you just got to be pretty straight and huntingdale is and that's why why i've always played pretty well there is that i drive it pretty good and i hit driver where a lot of guys are just hitting irons off the tees the younger guys would have been going with four and three irons off most of the tees i'm going down there with driver and uh it's a course that suits me so uh you know if it had been on a course like the australian from the back tees i'd have no chance So, um, you know, there are courses built for for certain people and those three courses that I won those tournaments certainly cool them, you know, you don't need a lot of length, you've just got to be straight there as well. So, I pick my courses. Yeah, indeed. I remember after that win,
0: sitting in the press conference, and we might have even had a chat after the press conference, and you were talking about the importance of showing people over the age of 50 or who are into the second stage of life, it's not over yet, the importance of that. and you really seemed quite sort of genuine and emphatic that there was a message to be had there, not just for you but for but for everybody.
1: Yeah, there's still charity. There's still a bunch of guys who are playing on the Legends Tour here that can can be competitive. Michael Long won a couple of the two-tier events here in Australia.
0: Phenomenal player, isn't
1: he? But what I I take a look at is that Tom Watson nearly winning the British Open at the age of 60. That's incredible. That would have been the most unbelievable thing. And I always think that it's possible. Golf is a number. Yeah. It's not how you hit it. It it is a number. At the end of the day, the lowest number wins. And, uh, you know... He should have won that. Stuart Sink, the least popular lovely bloke to ever win a major. Yeah, Stuart, Stuart's a great guy and he he's, a, he's actually coming out for the PGA at the end of the year this year. Oh, fabulous. So, um, you know, we'll look forward to having him here but uh, yeah, it's so sad that everybody wanted Tom to win but, uh, you know... Even Sink probably wanted Tom to win in yeah, some small probably. part of it. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I've, I do feel sad for Stuart, you know, you he's, see he, he's, he's been a hell of a player his whole life and, you know... It'll just be remembered the, for that. There's elements of that. Yeah, Faldo's
0: win in 96 is seen as Norman's loss, isn't it? That yeah. the,
1: the winner isn't the focus of
0: what happened, yeah, and that's, that's a shame when that happens. Yeah, that that's is, true. It, nobody hands anybody a golf tournament, no matter the circumstances, so that's a bit of a shame. Let's quickly switch gears. You've been very successful in business away from the golf course. What's been the motivator for that? What's that about? You've done nicely out of golf, mm-hmm. no question. You've made a very good living with golf, but you've parlayed that by, by being in business as well. What's been the motivator? its it...
1: Is it is it about the, the money or is it about something else? Oh, it's, Business. About, it's probably about security uh, for my wife and kids. Uh, the single biggest factor for me was if something happened to me, would my wife and kids be okay? And that's been my sole drive on making sure that I've been set up correctly, uh, do the right thing, i got a good... Bunch of accountants and that sort of stuff who look after everything that I've got, and uh, you know they do a hell of a job, and uh, you know I'm I'm thankful that I'm in a position now that uh, I'm reasonably comfortable. You've worked at it though, haven't you? You Um, you haven't just
0: handed your money to others and said turn it into more
1: money. No, I've been involved, and I've been involved. Um, We did a lot of building at the uh, at the early part. A guy named Brad Woodland, who was a member at Hope Island, we did. Oh, a serious amount of building around the Runaway Bay area there. The developments. Developments offices, where he he was a builder. Um, he found the projects. I funded them and we'd split, the, split, the, profits split, the, split the profits at the end and we did extremely well out of that. Yeah. Cash converters, um, I think you... Cash converters. I've still got half a dozen stores okay. uh, in Queensland. I used to have the Submaster franchise for Queensland uh, with a mate, uh, Russell Burse, and... Um, you know, uh, when we went public, uh, the head office bought all of that back, and we just became shop owners now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but laws have really tightened up on lending and everything now. So um, probably yeah. to the really good. I remember talking about you that some about that some years
0: ago, and you had some. There's a couple of moral issues about the cash converters mm-hmm. idea. It wasn't there? Yeah,
1: for you. Well, it was something that I didn't really want to go into. Um but um you know Cause when it's going well, it means that others are probably not doing so well it's a well cash cash converters actually works better when times are good uh-huh. they don't work great in times are bad. Um, you have two negative cash flows and that sort of stuff it's just like any other business, but we have about ninety staff and um you know i I look after them and you know we what do you like as a boss um pussycat Demanding? Oh, no, not really. I have good managers in place, and I had somebody, Paul Aram, a very good mate of mine, who um, who oversaw everything and did a hell of a job. So, um, you know, I'm really happy that I had good people that I could rely on, because being away playing golf, you've got to rely on a lot of other people. Well, of you and and uh, you've got to be
0: able to concentrate on your golf while you're away, not worry about what's going on. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> while well, you're not yeah, there. Yeah, well, and you know, you've got to be able to trust people. And Paul aram uh, I originally met him in Western Australia. I stayed with him when I was an amateur, and uh, when I first started as a pro. And uh, you know, we've been great mates for for a long time. And to have somebody like that in charge of everything that you got is pretty important. There's a bit of a theme there, isn't it, Pete? Loyalty seems quite big
0: with you. You've sort of gathered people around you that you've. Been in partnership with, be it June or Paul or others yep. in business that you've been in partnership yep. with for a long time. Once you've yep. made a connection, you stick with it.
1: Well, I think it's I think it's important. Um, you know, if you treat people right, they'll treat you right. Mm. Hopefully. Are you a demanding boss on the golf course? What do you demand
0: of a caddy? Mitchell caddied for you for a few years, as you know, in in, yep. in, in on the senior. Obviously, June's different. I'm sure she's the boss on the golf course <laughs> when she caddies.
1: Yeah, well, Mitchell had never caddied. Um, when I gave him the ultimatum, when I got on the tour, I said it's either boarding school or you come and caddy for me. <laughs> because the first year I got on the Champions Tour, I took everybody. Um, uh, my eldest daughter—that's well, pressure. That's well, not cheap. Well, my daughter, <laughs> my daughter Crystal, she was uh, she was in childcare at that stage. And uh, I went to a boss and said, listen, is it all right if Crystal has 12 months off? And will she have a job? Because my second daughter just finished grade 12, so she could have a gap year and it wouldn't matter. So Mitchell was the main worry and uh, he'd never caddied before. So for two months at the end of Christmas there, every every afternoon, nine holes, we'd go out and I'd school him in how to caddy and what to do. And not to tread on anybody's line and rake bunkers properly and that sort of stuff. And uh, well, that's important, isn't it? You know, he was really nervous the first tournament we played. And, um, you know, after about six months, he got into the role, and I tell you, he became a hell of a caddy. And uh, a few of the other guys were chasing him when they knew that I was going to give it oh, away. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, he, he did caddy for a few other guys. And after he'd finished caddying, he, he said, Dad, no I, wasn't I, oh, no, I just want a caddy for you. Yeah, we'll I, I wind it up
0: fairly certainly, but I wanted to ask you specifically about the 2012 Australian Open, which was just in filthy conditions. Um, yep. The storm that hit on the Sunday afternoon, it blew over some TV towers, if I'm not mistaken, and a few hoardings, it was, there was just a... Yeah, it was mayhem. It was man. absolute mayhem. Yeah. He was on the bag for you there... What do you remember about those last few holes? If I recall, there was
1: a delay. You got pulled off the
0: course for some time while the storm blew through, and then you had to go back out in some really high winds.
1: Um, well, this is this is where I actually won the tournament. Um, we were coming down fourteen. I just I birdied ten and I birdied twelve at the lakes for people at the at the lakes, and and I was either there about. I think Justin Rose was about the same score at that stage and uh, a few of the other guys um, John Sendon uh, Brendan Jones I Brendan think was Jones was already over. in the clubhouse that's at right. 3 under he made eagle on eight. that's right he did two. and uh, I got to 14 and it's such a difficult hole I had to lay up the par 5 across mm. the water and there's they put it, the pin on the right hand side and if you go in the back bunker you can't stop it short of the flag and you'll make bogey and if you hit it short there's a big hill and you'll come back into the water And I'm thinking, geez, I've been in that back bunker before and it's hard to even keep it on the green. With a 40, 50 kilometre an hour wind behind you, it was hard to keep it on the green. And I'm thinking, geez, I could make seven or eight if I hit it in that back bunker. And and Mitchell said, Dad, the best place to miss this green is five yards right of that bunker. The the flag was in a little bit of a, a, a sort of a hollow and it was an easy chip from that side. And this was the first time, I think, in my whole career that I've aimed to miss a green. Wow. So I actually hit it to the right, just to miss the right edge of the green. I pushed it a little bit further, finished about five yards off. I had the easiest chip, just chipped it down to a foot and made five and went away to the next hole. But reflecting at mm-hmm. nighttime on that, what a great decision for Mitch to come mm. up with that at that time. Are you generally one who likes the caddy to have input like that, or was that rare for him to do that? No, that was very rare. So it was a big moment it was for him to
0: speak up and for you to nor- see the sense.
1: Normally, I uh, normally I'm I'm pretty good at my own stuff, and all I want is confirmation from him. But he actually came to me and said that, right. and that was that was probably well, that the, tells
0: you straight away that he must be very well, confident in what he's saying too. Well, he's on the ball. Yeah, you
1: know, he knew exactly what he was talking about, and uh, I'll never forget it. Speaking of chipping, you chipped cross-handed for, six, for, six, for years. six years. What happened there, and
0: how did you overcome that?
1: Um, I had a few uh, yippy problems with the. And the only way that I. Well, I went to the long putter, so. Um you Sam know,
0: Torrance, I think, gave you that, didn't
1: he? Uh, Sam Torrance, yeah. yeah. Uh, I played with Sam in Italy. You initially had the one under the chin, didn't you? That was yeah, you a lot I've, of success. With. Yeah, I've got too many chins now, so I, <laughs> forgot, which, yeah, yeah. I forgot which chin to put it on. So. Jack Newton says he hasn't got enough hands for a long putter. You've got too many chins. Yeah. Oh, I should be in the Chinese phone book. <laughs> chin, chin, chin. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, you know, you lose a bit of confidence. That's
0: fatal in competition. I mean, you and you can chip beautifully around the practice green all afternoon, yep. can't you? And if you get on the first green and miss it, yep. it, it it's, like, it's got nothing to do with the yep. practice green.
1: And this was the same as what um, forced Brett Ogle out of the game. Yeah, He, he, he got the yips with the chipper. And I, I was mucking around one day and I thought, oh, you know, a lot of guys backhand putts, I may as well crosshand a chip and see how it goes. And I actually felt for the, for the run-up ones, it was mm-hmm. pretty good. And I thought, oh... What about the ones where you need to land it soft? Yeah. So I started practising flops, with it, and I could hit them as well. And I thought, oh well, I'll use that. So then um, I used that for a long time, and it's when I met Gary Edwin when I changed uh, because Gary, um, you know, I, I played with Peter Lonard, and this was this was the Cannon Challenge at Terry Hill. This was the last. How many times did you win that? Three, 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 three times. I won one at Castle Hill and two at Terry Hills. And this was the last one that I won. And I played with Peter Lonard, and 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 Pete, probably one of the best ball strikers around the place, and he played flawless from tee to green. He played absolutely flawless that last day, and I ended up getting him by a shot, and I was all over the paddock. And Gary Edwin came up to me after the game, and I was sitting down by myself, and uh, he said, "Oh, well done, Pete. Congratulations." I said, "Oh, yeah, thanks, Gaz." And he said, "Oh, you don't you don't seem too happy." And uh, I, said, uh, I said, Gaz, I said, I am so close to giving the game away. This is minutes after winning a tournament. Is, this is 20 minutes after walking off the tee winning and doing the presentation. And he, he said, why? And I said, I've got no enjoyment for the game because every time I stand over the ball, I don't know whether it's going to go right or left. I said, I said I'm so nervous over the ball, I don't know where it's going. Did you get it left down 17? that year into the
0: junk over near the fence there, oh, you pulled a two-iron yeah. out and knocked it on the green yeah, somehow, I, I, I probably shot, yeah. I absolutely. probably could have, but,
1: <laughs> but yeah, you sorry know, you yeah, but it was, it was just one of those times where I was just flat because I didn't enjoy going out because I knew I was going to struggle and that's when Gary said you want to change it, and I said, Gaz, I said, if you could fix me so I can enjoy the game again and this was in 1997 and um uh, enjoyed the game again, or was obviously enjoyed no, the game because you just won, haven't you? Be, so, because I just want to enjoy doing what I love doing, and uh, there's no enjoyment playing badly. And so we started, and uh, he was at Palm Meadows at that at that time, and then he became the pro at Hope Island, where I was for a few years. And we were out the back, and he he gave me these drills for a month to do, and and I thought I was you know stick man. <laughs> And uh, he got me on the right track and uh, two months I'd been with him and we went to the Aussie Open at uh, Royal Adelaide, the one that Stuart Appleby won, and I could have won it so easily. I finished second. Chalmers? Was that
0: 98 before oh, the Chalmers. Chalmers. Chalmers I yeah. played with yeah, Stuart. Stuart
1: uh, we, close, we, yeah. we, we tied for second. Um, and that was a big turning point because I knew what he was teaching me was going to work. That blew a gale too, didn't it, that week, and that was no push over that course. Um it's windy. it's always a tough golf course. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether no. you know, and it's um but uh, it, it got me on the road to think, well, I'm on the right track. Okay. And uh and Gary was instrumental on me getting on the champions tour because when I was forty nine I said, Gaz, I wanna I wanna play again and um so he set up um, a whole system for six months. And we just stuck to it. We worked hard. We did this before the qualifying for the Champions Tour. So, I've, you know, of anybody who's kept me going and who is a great mate and I, you know, I still have coffee with him yeah. nearly, nearly every week. He's, I, lovely boy, Gary. I don't He's a lovely bloke. I don't go down and hit balls very often, but I'll go down and see Gaz and sit down and have a, yeah. have a coffee with him. He was the one who gave me the enjoyment back in this game. Yeah, that's quite amazing. He could have been lost I, yep. I find that
0: – people will find that, that you could sit there a winner – Yep, and be unhappy. Yep. Does that, does that tell us anything about the game? There's no joy in winning.
1: Well, golf is golf is my life. It's you know, if you're a professional golfer, your life revolves around your golf. If you're not happy with your golf, it it sort of stems and flows into other things. And uh, all I wanted was to enjoy playing golf.
0: Yeah. A couple of things to finish up. Uh, here's a bit of a bit of a left field question. Are you colour
1: Pete? Yep, red and green.
0: Is Anthony, is Anthony Gilligan colourblind? Yep. Did you play together at the Cannon Challenge one year, the two of you? <laughs> yeah, Terry Hills, <laughs> in Terry fact. Terry Hills, yeah. <laughs> what happened on the 18th hole there that day?
1: Um, yeah, well, um, <laughs> uh, well, we were using different numbers, and and Anthony Gilligan hit it into the water on 17 and then changed to another, the same number as I was. And, um, you know, we both put similar dots on our ball. Anyway, we got up there and I'd been in front of Gillow all day. One in green, one in red, I think, is that right? <laughs> yeah, I was in green, he was in red. And uh, he walked straight up to this ball and he hit it. And I walked up to it. Yep, that's a number one. My dots on it. I got it up there and when we got onto the got onto the um uh onto the green don 't know i don 't know how we even found out because wasn 't it the caddies didn 't you throw it to the caddy you looked at it and said yeah I'm, you know, Pete. Well, yeah i 'm pretty sure my my caddy at that time time Carlos salvato said uh, i don 't think this is ours, and I know we you hit it here so uh, we ended up going back and hitting another one. So,
0: yeah, no, it was sad. It can only happen once, surely. Two blokes, both red-green blind, both using right. red and green to mark their balls, yep. had the same number ball for no apparent reason. Yep, and, yep, uh, just silly things, isn't it? Crazy. I wanted to get your thoughts on the long putter. Of course, you used it for years, then the band came in in 2016, you went to the short putter. On reflection, has that been as big a deal as... Many of us thought it was going to be at the time.
1: Um, well, I, I started winning my major tournaments when I started using it. I had the great year in 89. Oh, which
0: I wanted to ask you about. As well, well
1: yeah. I, met, uh, uh, I met Sam Torrance. Um, well, I played with Tam, Sam at the Italian Open in 1988. And he, first time I'd ever seen it. And he putted unbelievable. And I thought, oh, and I'd been having a few problems, not yips or anything. And no, cause I, you were a good putter, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'd just been putting badly. And uh, I I got to the British PGA, British PGA, British Masters at Woburn, uh, just north of London. And I said to Sam on the putting green, I said, you wouldn't have another one that I could try. He said, oh, yeah. He said, I've got the prototype in the boot if you want. It. He said, it's pretty ugly looking. And so I ended up using it for a couple of hours on the putting green and it actually felt pretty comfortable. And um, I shot 74 the first round with my normal putter. And then the first day that I used it, I got onto the first hole. I had about a 15-footer. I didn't make the putt, but it felt really good. And then I made about a 30-footer on the second. I ended up shooting 66, and, you know, that's history. And then, you know, it was in the bag for about 10 years. And have its own seat on a plane, I imagine, because yep. you don't want to lose it. Well, Did
0: you actually do that? Some people recommend it. Oh, book no. Book the seat for the putter. Did you no, ever attempt it?
1: No, I didn't do that, but I, I put it on – I named my boat Broomstick. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, and put a picture of the broomstick on the back of the boat. There you go. What about that decision to change it? Is that, what do you um, reckon? They had an opportunity to get rid of it, and they should have
0: done it. It's, um, it's ultimately backfires. If, if, if what they didn't like was the look of it, we've still got the look of it, don't we?
1: Well, they had three years. They gave us three years to do something about it, yeah. and they should have said, yo, after three years, boom, and it's just created such a nightmare for them now. Yeah. Um, well, now they're stuck, aren't they? They've, they've made the decision. They can't now
0: admit that they got it completely wrong and do it, change it again.
1: Well, no, they they probably can't. But you know, the you look at the Champions Tour and Bernard Langer and and Scott McCarron get pulled into the shed nearly every week to say, "Listen, you know, you guys are a little close." You know, it's just opened up a can of worms It can't be good for
0: them either. I mean, a guy like Langer, whose integrity has been impeccable his entire career, now gets questioned on a weekly basis publicly. Yep,
1: Yep. And, you know, who's to say if you have a jumper or a sweater or wet-weather gear, whether they're attaching it to the you know, it's… If you were still playing at that level, would you still be using it like them, held off the chest, do you think? Um, You know, when I went back to the short putter… I remember it. I came out and watched you play. I puttered so good. (laughs) <laughs> I and that. I'm kicking myself I didn't go back to <laughs> it earlier. years before. Yeah, because the last couple of years I didn't putt very well with the long putter and, uh, yeah, it would have been nice to see how it would have gone.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's funny,
1: isn't it? Um,
0: I've got to give you the right of reply. We had Peter Lonard on the show a couple of episodes ago and he tells a story, and I know that you know what this story's going to be, but I want you to hear him tell it then I'm going to give you a right of reply as to what might have actually happened.
2: Okay. Tell me, make sure you can hear this. Peter used to... Um I'm going to throw him under the bus here. So he was <laughs> very good at, uh, every year we have these yearly, uh what do you call them, um, commitments with the tour where you've got to go to meetings and compulsory meetings. So everybody's got to go. So Peter Peter used to, he, he'd sort of left Europe and he'd come back to play a few here and there. And so he stayed with me in England. I had a place in um a village called Sunning Hill. And uh, he was very good at getting into these meetings and getting out. And, I, like, I'd never seen him in action before, but this day, he you know, you sign in because they know we're, we're all hopeless at going to meetings. So mm-hmm. you sign in, and then I watched him go and say hello to all the head honchos, Schofield, and all these blokes. Hello, 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 hello. And then I, I'm watching him, I'm thinking, oh, where's he going? And the next thing, he's gone, right? <laughs> out the side door, he's out of there. <laughs> I'm stuck in this meeting for an hour and a half. So anyway, so, you know, it was gold. It was like... He's been seen. That's all. That he's it been happen. seen. Yes. Yeah. So you know, somebody's going to say, seen him, yeah. "Oh, senior wasn't there," or something. They go, "Oh, I, I spoke either. to him. That's I right. shook he his shook my hand. That's yeah. right." <laughs> so he's good. He's as good as being there, right? So I'm thinking, "You bastard! I can't believe you just did that." How do? So that, that was an old. To me, that was a, an old-time move okay. on how to how to do it. Okay. So okay, that's a trick. Anyway, so finally, I come home. You know, hour and a half, two hours later. You know, I want to kill myself. Been talking about you know the food in the players' locker rooms and all this rubbish that has nothing to do with us anyway and um i we were all, i lived in like a, it was like a terrace house and it was like there was probably a block of six of them all lined up and i was quite good friends with my neighbor so i parked my car and i uh, get out and the uh, my at that time my my neighbor's father was staying with him and he's out gardening or doing something to the front in the front yard and G'day, John. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Peter, how are you? I said, yeah, I'm good. He says, oh, he said, uh, just met your father. I said, oh, what? He said, your father. I was talking to him earlier. What a lovely chap. I said, my father. He goes, yeah. Yes, yeah, your father. I said, you sure? He goes, yes, no doubt, no doubt. The similarities, you look, you are the spitting image of each other. It's incredible. Are you sure it was my father? He goes, yes. He said, I said, hello, my name's John. He said, hi, I'm Peter Sr. So <laughs> I was like, I was, I was like, no, that's his name, Peter Sr. Yeah. <laughs> so he's has uh, he yeah. ever lived that down with you? Or <laughs> no, you I was like, well, he was, I was dirty because he's, they said I was a spitting image of him and they, he's dirty because he, they, he thought they thought he he could be my father. So we were both
0: not very impressed with it. <laughs> Well, there's a bunch of stuff in there that you probably need
1: to reply to, Pete. What's your recollection of what happened that day? Yeah, pretty similar. I, I met John on the way into the into the house, and uh, I said, "Oh, yeah, I'm um, hi, Peter Senior," and he said, "Oh, he said, oh, you're here, you're here to watch Peter play," and I went, "Oh, oh, yeah, 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 okay." And uh, it was, and and it gets around really quickly because uh, when when Pete came in, he said, "Oh, he said, John, this is my dad," you know. So we get to the course the next day, first round of the British PGA Championship at Wentworth, and I look up on the board and Pete's. Pete's about four under after about ten holes, and I walk across the practice fairway and they go, hey, your son's doing well. And nearly everybody must have <laughs> known the story. You know, I, I don't know whether a lot of told them all. And to this day... Pete and I still say, G'day, Dad. How are you going, son? So, no, it's been a long, a long thing. lovely thing yeah. to share.
0: The first part of that story, which gets overlooked, the master of getting in and out of a meeting without having to sit through all the stuff about the players. I won't ask you about that, but I will ask you, you did quite a, a serious and lengthy stint with the Australian PGA, giving back to the professional game in that way. Tell me about that and why
1: you wanted to do that, why that's uh, important. Well, I was on the board for nine years. Um, I think everybody should have an opportunity to go in and see actually how hard it is to run an organisation like the PGA. The other side is never seen by the players, is it almost never? you know, uh, the players are always, why can't we get this, why can't we get that, why aren't we doing this, why aren't we doing that? And until you know the inner workings of how the PGA work, and Roger Davis has just become the chairman of the PGA, and... um, you know it is just a thankless job uh the guys who are on that board uh, we have quite a few business people who are very good at what they do if they can't get anything rolling nobody can get anything rolling and uh to have our players on there supporting those sort of guys trying to do and synchronize everything together gavin kirkman's our ceo now of the pga does a wonderful job uh, but you've got to have a good team behind you, and uh, until you're on that board, you do not know how difficult things are. It's a tough gig in Australia, particularly, isn't it? Because
0: the PGA is responsible for both the vocational members, the club pros, and the tour. Yep.
1: It's they are definitely two different masters with two different needs. Well, we look at the tournament as as our sort of signature thing mm-hmm. and try and feed everything off from there, but you can't do anything without the vocational membership. Um, that's the grassroots of the game. That's where the game is developed. Um, you know, we're, that's sort of the icing on the – our tournaments are the icing on the cake, but the hard work is done at ground roots and, you know – All uh, of those
0: blokes playing the tournaments at some point have had a – an absolutely crucial role played by a club pro.
1: That's a, that's exactly right. A vocational right. member. And uh, as, as I said before, until they know the inner workings of how an organisation works and how much is demanded on you, I was just talking to Roger yesterday, and uh, during the President's Cup, he's got five dinners. I mean, it's bad enough going to one or two, din- but five dinners in one week? Yep. And he'll be talking. And on talking. your best, best behaviour, all of them. Yeah. You've got to know everything about everything because you're yep. going to be asked. That's exactly stuff. right. And then he's got meetings on top yeah. of that during the day. So, you know, it's uh, it's a big job and, uh, you know, we, uh, we're we all happy we got somebody really good doing it.
0: Yeah. Do you do any mentoring, Pete? Do young people seek you out and ask you about it? Because you've got such an amount of – and this seems to me right through the game, people who've got so much experience in every facet of the game. It would seem to me if you, if you were a young player, you could do a lot worse than to – Give Pete Senior a tap on the shoulder on a dryer and say, mate, if you've got an hour, I'd love to have a coffee.
1: Yeah, you know, years ago that used to be the norm where, you know, Finchie, myself, or, or one of the other players would go to one of the better players and ask for advice. These days I don't think that happens. I think they're surrounded by people who know exactly what they need to know mm-hmm. and direct them in that direction. I, I've, I've had a few mates ask me what, um, what I did, but not overly abundant. Yeah. It's a shame, isn't it, in some ways? Well, you know, as as we said, the game's changing. Things are changing. They look at things differently than we did. It's a
0: lot of knowledge, though, isn't it, Pete? I feel like and the PGA really strikes me, is that every year amongst the membership, we lose a whole bunch of knowledge as some of the older players, you know, yep. fall off the perch. And yep. there's so much wisdom just goes
1: with Yeah, them. Well, I used to love sitting down with Tomo. Yeah. You know, and, you know, he, he didn't say much, but when he said something, you know, you took notice of it. It's that great. Clay often tells the
0: story about poor old Chuck Fowler. who's had that really successful. I think they just won the World Cup. And he came across Tomo in a car park somewhere and said, mate, what do you think about my game, Peter? What can I do better? And Thompson said to him, have less shots, Peter. That's the trick. Just have less shots and walked away. And Fowler apparently was fuming for a year. thought he'd been flipped off. But the more he thought about it, I was like – it's kind of that simple, Pete. Just have less shots, no, mate. That's all you've got to do.
1: He was one of those dry characters. Yeah, he was uh, – no, he, he, he What a didn't, legacy he's left. Well, yeah, and he didn't like nonsense. No. If you spoke to him intelligently, you know, you'd find him a wonderful guy. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Indeed. Uh, last couple of things, what, what's, what's the future hold for Pete Senior? Clearly golf's
0: still going to be a part of it, and professional golf and senior tour golf.
1: Um, I'm still going to play a little bit. Um, I don't play a lot. Even when I go home, I don't play a lot these days. Um, my wife and I have been travelling the last three years. We've been Are you enjoying well, that. Where have you been? And what's been What's been the best thing about that? Um, well, we did all the national parks in America last year. Oh, Nice. Uh, so we took two or three months to do that. Um, Driving? You drove yourselves? Or, yep. Yeah. Well, yep. We did it in a all, van. Uh, yeah. We We started in um, Seattle. And we went out to all the um, national parks around Nevada and all that type of stuff. Zion, Bryce Cabin, Canyon. There's about five of them there that we did there. Um, we I took all the kids and their boyfriends and girlfriends up to Japan at Christmas. We had three weeks in the snow because
0: you, of course, played the Japan tour for quite yep. some time, didn't
1: you? Yep. So. so we had three weeks there. We've had a few cruises. We went to Alaska. We spent two weeks in the gold fields. So uh, that was that was unbelievable. Freezing cold, middle of summer, and it's like two degrees. But it was but it was great. It's Alaska, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And then we did oh, the cruise. Uh, we did the cruise down from Anchorage down to Vancouver, which was which was fantastic. Uh, so you're enjoying life, Pete and yeah. I'm just doing things that I never had a chance Reading to do. the rewards for all the hard work that you've put yeah. in over there, because it is hard work. People think golf's – and they, there's lots of
0: money and all that sort of stuff, but there's a
1: lot yeah. of hard work
0: behind it too. No one gives it to you.
1: Yeah, there's a fair bit of sacrifice, but, uh, you know, you, I couldn't have picked a better place. It's fantastic to talk to you, Pete. It's good Maybe on you. It, mate. really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's honestly difficult to imagine a better ambassador for both
0: golf and Australia than Peter Senior, and I can say quite honestly what a privilege it was to have the opportunity to do that interview, and I can only thank Peter again for being so generous with his time. I hope you enjoyed Episode 8 as much as I did, and that you'll come back for Episode 9, because on Episode 9, it's going to be my great honour to interview a man who I've looked up to professionally for many years many years he is without question one of the very best in my chosen field and he has one of the most interesting minds i've ever encountered he is john huggan and you'll hear him as you've never heard him before next time here on the thing about golf